Good evening, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we're going to be in that text in just a few moments. Uh, I was telling uh, Oscar and Stephen tonight before service started here that I had just recently moved from San Diego, California uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the reasons that I was excited about moving uh, was to be around Bryant more than I had been in the past. Uh, we both are from Minnesota originally, uh, but I wouldn't say that we got to know each other super well in Minnesota. It's been more so communication we've had since we've both gone out of Minnesota to different places. Uh, but it's very encouraging for me to spend some time with you. I've already been built up by some of the conversations I've had so far. Uh, let me just explain what the plan is for these series of lessons for these next couple days. The overall idea of these lessons is, to, is for us to think together about what God's purpose is for us. Uh, why did God create us? What is God's plan for, for us as human beings? And there's lots of different passages we could go to, but tomorrow we're just going to look at a couple passages in Ezekiel that help us answer that question. Uh, and, and then the second part of the lessons are going to be primarily on Sunday, where we're going to look at uh, the strength that God has given us to be the people that he's asked us to be. Uh, you'll even find uh, secular psychologists saying that, that people that aren't even Christian, that don't even believe in the Bible, uh, have this sense of, of moral duty, but nobody seems to be able to live up to what we were supposed to be. So what are the resources God has given us to fulfill the purpose that he's made us to live for? Uh, but the, the, the first lesson tonight, is this really a way of us orienting ourselves towards what we're looking at for these next couple lessons? So this lesson tonight is not really necessarily dealing with our purpose or really necessarily dealing with the strength that God gives us, but hopefully this lesson will get us in the frame of mind to think about the things that we're going to be considering tomorrow and Sunday and Monday, Lord willing. Uh, if, if I was to ask you, what you, what are the most notable things that you are familiar with in the Gospel of John? What would your answer be? I think a lot of people would say, if they've studied through the Gospel of John, that the seven I am statements are pretty famous, and people, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, all of those different things. Uh, and maybe another thing people would say about the Gospel of John are, are the major, the seven major signs that Jesus does. Like the first miracle is turning the water to wine. Uh, and not all of them are numbered, but John just says this was the first miracle or this was the second one. And then like you're on a rabbit Easter egg hunt, you're trying to find out what the other ones are. Uh, but that's another notable thing about the Gospel of John. When I was in California, I had started using the Gospel of John to study with non-Christians. And it became a gospel, along with the Gospel of Mark, that sort of became one of my go-to books to use when, when I'm studying with somebody who's not a Christian yet. And as I was studying through the Gospel of John with different people, I started noticing that one of the unique things about the Gospel of John that maybe is not talked about as much are some challenging questions that Jesus will ask in this book. If, for example, if you have a red-letter Bible where Jesus' words are in red letters, do you know what the first red letters are in the Gospel of John? It's this question right here. What are you seeking? The first thing that Jesus says in this Gospel is, what are you seeking? 
And this, as we're going to see in this lesson, sort of becomes the controlling question for this book. I know that in the other Gospels, Jesus will ask penetrating questions that get to the heart of the matter, but there's a lot of questions that are unique to the Gospel of John. And let me suggest that if you wanted to understand somebody, you might know about their background, you might know about their, their cultural upbringing, all of those sorts of things, and that might tell you some things about somebody. But if you want to know somebody to their core, you ask them the question, what is it that you want more than anything else? And that tells you what somebody's all about. That tells me what I'm all about. And Jesus is going to ask us this question as we look at this passage tonight. Let's go ahead and look at the context of where this passage or this question comes from. It's in John chapter 1. And let's go ahead and read John chapter 1 verses 35 to 39 to get the context of when he asks this. So John chapter 1 verses 35 to 39. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, as we go through this lesson, we're going to be coming back to this scene and referencing this several times. But I want you to imagine what's happening here. Uh, John the Baptist is spending time with two of his disciples. Notice that this text says John had his own disciples. And so he's walking around with them, and then Jesus walks by, and you can just feel the, the enthusiasm that John has as he says, Behold, that's the one, that's the Lamb of God. This is the second time in this context that he said that these words. Uh, the first time was to a group of hostile Jews, and now he's saying it to two of his own disciples. Now, you notice that when John says this, he actually loses two of his disciples. Remember when John said in, in uh, John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. That the, the person of whom John, John the Baptist was seeking glory was Jesus' glory over his own. So he points out Jesus to two of his disciples and then those people stop following John and they start following Jesus. By the way, in this first chapter of John, Jesus is collecting his first five disciples. These first two that get called out here they're going to start indirectly inviting other people, directly and indirectly, inviting other people to come follow Jesus. But notice, if you were to picture these two disciples following Jesus, imagine Jesus is walking on a dusty trail, and then Jesus turns around, and the first question that he asks to two people following after him is, what are you seeking? Now, Notice that Jesus isn't asking this question just generally. It's not like he just met two people at a coffee shop or something. He says, so what, what are you seeking? Uh, his question is in the context of them actually coming towards Jesus. Why would Jesus ask them that question? Why, how come the first thing he, he does is not to praise them and say, hey, I'm really glad that you're here right now following me? Well, I think the reason that he asks this question is that there's some reason of, uh, to, to be skeptic about somebody who's following after Jesus. And now we're going to see this as we go through this lesson, but there are some people that can seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, 
And so Jesus is getting them to be honest with themselves and to articulate what is it that they want. Now, how did they answer this question? They say, well, uh, where are you staying? And Jesus says, uh, well, it's the fourth hour of the day. uh, It's the tenth hour of the day, which means it's four in the afternoon, uh, which basically means that this roadside conversation is not going to be enough for them to answer this question on what it is that they're seeking. All right, so that's the scene that Jesus asks this question in. This question, what are you seeking, becomes the controlling question of the Gospel of John. In fact, if you were to read through the book and just highlight or underline all the times that you see the words seek or seeking or seeks, like uh, with an S at the end, you'd find that, that those words are used in the Gospel of John about 29 times. And I want to show you uh, the next time that these words are used. Go over to John chapter 4. And this is the famous scene when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. And uh, let's just go ahead and read John 4, verses 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In this scene, Jesus is, is uncovering the sin of this woman at the well. And there's some debate about, is she trying to change the subjects about the proper place of worship because Jesus is getting too personal? Uh, we're not going to get into that right now. But Jesus is, is explaining to this woman that there is a proper place of worship in this moment that he's speaking to the woman. That the Jews worship in Jerusalem. That was God's appointed place for the temple. And the Samaritans worshipped in other places, and that, those were not the right places. But in verse 23, there's coming this time where people are going to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, and they'll be able to do it anywhere. But you have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That has to be the way that He said. But do you notice what Jesus says about this in verse 20, 23 and 24? That the Father is actually seeking people who want to worship Him the way that He has asked, and with the right spirit that He's asked them to worship Him. Uh, so you see at the beginning of this Gospel that there are people that are seeking, but do you know who else is seeking? The Father is also in the business of seeking. Maybe you could picture it like this. All around us right now, there's radio waves. And the way that you can tune into those radio waves is if you had a radio and you put it to the right, the right number, and then you'd be able to catch those radio waves that are all around us right now. God in heaven is seeking, He's looking after people that are trying to seek Him, but what kind of person is He looking for? He's looking for people that are seeking to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so when, God, when our frequency matches what God is looking for, you get a match. God is looking for a, spur, a certain kind of person. Now, this brings up an interesting thing in the Gospel of John. Is Well... What does it look like when the radio frequencies don't match? What does it look like when I'm tuned in the wrong spot, but I'm looking for God, but I'm not looking for Him the right way? 
Look at John chapter 6. This is another text where you see these ideas of seeking after God. In this context, Jesus has just fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. And by the way, when, when the Bible says that it was 5,000 men, that's just a way of saying that it was like 5,000 families. So there could have been 15, 25,000 people that Jesus fed on this occasion. And Jesus uh, withdraws himself from these people that he feeds, and then they're seeking after him the next day. Look at John chapter 6, verses 24 to 27. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Notice that word, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. All right, I want you to imagine this crowd seeking after Jesus and contrast this with the disciples in chapter 1. They went to bed that night after Jesus had fed the 5,000. They wake up the next morning. Jesus isn't there. The, bo the boats are still there. Jesus had walked across the water. He didn't need a boat. So they have a lot of questions right now. But how hard is it to row a boat across a sea that's five or seven miles across? I remember growing up in Minnesota, there's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country called the Boundary Waters, where it's just a series of lakes uh, that get separated by pieces of land. And if you want to go from one lake to another, you have to get all of your gear out, carry your canoe across that strip of land, and then bring it to the next, uh, to the next lake. And I remember the first time I ever went canoeing, we had gone about 100 yards out. And I told my friend that I was canoeing with that I was already tired. And uh, he thought that was going to be setting ourselves up for a miserable week. Uh, we ended up getting through all of it, but just 100 yards was enough work for me. Can you imagine these people rowing hard, getting blisters on their hands all night? And then they get to Jesus, and they're exhausted and they're tired, and they get to Jesus, and Jesus sort of rebukes them in this passage, doesn't he? You know, in a local church, doesn't everybody sort of know who drives the furthest to get to the church building? You might have the longest drive. You might have the worst traffic, and you get here. And this text is showing us that that in and of itself may not mean that God is pleased with you. Because what is it that these people are seeking? What it is that they want from Him is more food. Jesus says, you're seeking Me, and if you stopped there, you might think that's good. You're seeking Me, but then He says, not because you saw signs. Well, wait a minute. I thought they saw the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000. They were there. Didn't they see it? Well, what's the purpose of a sign? If you drive on the road and you see a sign that says McDonald's, is the purpose of that sign to get out of your car and go, wow, look at those beautiful golden arches? Or is the purpose of that sign to help you know that this is a place that you can come inside and get food? When the Gospel of John records Jesus' as miracles, it uses the word signs. Because the point of what Jesus is doing is not just the miracle, it's pointing to a deeper reality. Superficially, these people saw Jesus feed the 5,000. 
But they didn't see the deeper meaning to it. And so Jesus had withdrawn from them. In fact, go back to just a couple verses before this in John 6, verse 15. This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in John 6.15 it says, Perceiving then they were, that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. These people, after Jesus feeds all of these people, this reminds me of Beauty and the Beast when they're storming the castle with they got their, the, the pitchforks and the torches and everything and they're ready to kill the beast. In the wilderness right now, they're ready for a rebellion. Jesus has fed the people. They're ready to go take over the Roman Empire. They're ready by force to make Jesus the king and destroy the Romans. And notice what Jesus does when they're seeking him for the wrong reason. The text says that he withdraws from them. The Gospel of John is showing us that you might be somebody who in one way or another, you're seeking Jesus. You come to church. Uh, Maybe you read your Bible from time to time. But Jesus might still decide to withdraw from you if you're seeking Him for the wrong reasons. Now, what would be some examples today of things that people are trying to seek Jesus to get? I'm going to bring up a couple examples. And as I bring up these examples, let me be clear that it's not wrong in in and of itself to have some of these things. But it's wrong to try to use Jesus as like a cosmic gumball machine to get the thing that you want. Because Jesus is so beautiful and so glorious that He's an end in Himself. You don't use Him to get lesser things. So what would be some of these lesser things that people might seek after Jesus to get? Maybe one example would be finances. And think about Judas. Uh, how long was Jesus' earthly ministry? People say about three, three and a half years. By the way, do you know how we get that number? It's in the Gospel of John, where John records three Passovers. And so the idea is that if John records three Passovers during the life of Jesus, then his ministry must have lasted about three, three and a half years. That's how people get that number. And so for those three or three and a half years, if that's how long it was, Judas had been following Jesus, and John chapter 12, verse 6, says that he was a thief, and he was in charge of the money bag. He was like the CEO. He was the treasurer. And he used to help himself of what was put into the treasury bag. Um, There's a lot of scandals that you can see on TV. Ministers using the contributions of, of people following that minister to get private jets, and all kinds of scandals like that. But... Do you think in a local church there can be people that suddenly, when they come upon financial hardship, suddenly they're interested in coming to church? And suddenly they're interested in being part of God's people? Now, are Christians commanded to help one another financially? I'm not trying to shame or guilt anybody that's ever been helped financially by a local body of people. But what I'm saying is this. That if in, in your returning, maybe your financial poverty has caused you to reconsider your spirituality, and if it has, praise God for those circumstances. But if the only thing that you're coming for, and the only thing that you're seeking Jesus for on a superficial level, is for finances, it's not deep enough. Just like the people that were looking for the bread. 
What about some people who seek after Jesus for the social benefit? Maybe before you were a Christian, you never had friends. And now you become a Christian, and you're with people that you don't have to worry about swearing, you don't have to worry, they're easy people to be around. Now, should we get fulfillment from being with one another? That's something that I think Christians need to do more of. But if the only reason you stick around is just because there's some nice people that I get to hang around with, what happens when those people let you down? You're gone. We'll talk more about that on Monday. But it's got to go deeper than the social benefit. It's not wrong to have a social benefit, but it's wrong if that's the deepest reason you're seeking Jesus. What about using Jesus to add power to something that you already believe or want? Uh, I think about the Pharisees. Why were the Pharisees threatened by Jesus? It's because they had positions of power and authority. Why, Why is it even that some of the 12 disciples at times were interested in following Jesus? Remember that time in the Gospels where uh, James and John come up and say, hey, will you do whatever we want? And Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? Uh, can we sit on your right and your left in your glory using Jesus for power? How, how would that look today, though? I remember when I was in college, I had a, uh, what is it called, a, a political science class. And we had a guest speaker one day that the teacher knew, and the guest speaker came in and he talked about a certain political uh, viewpoint. And in that class, I raised my hand and I said, so where did you get your ideas from? And he said, from Jesus. Because Jesus was all about this political agenda. Uh, That's sort of like using Jesus. Because the thing that you care about the most in that case is your politics. And because it sounds like Jesus said a few things that sort of fit your ideas, Jesus is a big name to slap onto something, so you're going to do that. Um, There's no shortage of people wanting to use Jesus' name to add power to something that they believe. I I like to read books, and sometimes I go through uh, books on Kindle, like on Amazon. And there was a book that I saw recently, and it was titled, What Would Jesus Eat? And I thought it was going to be like an interesting study on the kind of agricultural practices of the ancient world. And I started digitally thumbing through the book. Uh, and I found out that the book was all about not eating genetically modified food and stuff like that. And that's really not the point of any of that. Have you ever wondered why there's so many denominations? Uh, last time I checked, there was about 35,000 groups of people that say that they follow Jesus. Do you think that ever gets confusing to people in the religious world? Do you know why I think one of the reasons is that there's so many different religious groups? Is that let's say that I start with some kind of desire, and then I cherry-pick a few verses in the Bible that I make seem like that this was Jesus' biggest mission. I can get a lot of other people that like those ideas too and start joining my movement. This gets us, though, to the question. In the Gospel of John, what are the right reasons to follow after Jesus? Do you know how many chapters that the Bible has? The the, the Bible has 1,189 chapters. And I've read before, and I haven't haven't gone through to count all of this up, but I've read before that out of all the chapters in the Bible, John chapter 1 is the chapter with the most descriptions of Jesus. Go back to John chapter 1. I think the implication or one of the ideas that we can take from John chapter 1 
is that if Jesus' first words are, what are you seeking? Well, what does John chapter 1 tell us about Jesus so that we know what we should be seeking? Do you remember that scene in John chapter 1 with the disciples and, they, and Jesus asks them this question? And, and their answer to the question is, well, Jesus, where are you staying? Do you want to know why that's such a great question? Where are you staying, Jesus? Because when Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking? They don't say, well, we want bread or we want some friends, or we want whatever. Their question is, where are you staying? Because we need to spend time with you. We need to get to know you better, and we need to draw near to you. And you notice what Jesus said to them. He doesn't withdraw from them like he did in John chapter 6. What does he say to them? Come and you'll see. Because the, the, the radio frequencies are matching. They're seeking him for the right reasons. So... What does John chapter 1 say about Jesus? And as we analyze some of these things, think about your own heart and ask yourself the question, is this why I'm seeking him? Here's the first description of Jesus in John chapter 1. Jesus is called the Word. John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, This book begins in similar fashion to the book of Genesis. Uh, In the beginning, you got this and that. And skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, This text is calling Jesus the Word. And I remember when I first became a Christian, and I would read this passage, and I, I did not understand why Jesus was being described as the Word. What does that mean? There's a couple different things to say about it. I'm just going to say one thing about it right now. For Jesus to be the Word, well, let me ask you this. Why do you speak words to other people? It's so that you can express yourself. It's so that you can make yourself known to the person that you're talking to. You can't know what is on somebody's mind unless they speak words and let you know. So maybe one of the simplest ways to understand what this is saying is that Jesus being the Word means that He's the expression of God. God is choosing to reveal who He is through the person of Jesus. Now, do you suppose that throughout the history of the world, one of the questions that people have had is, what is God like? What's God like? And then people have tried to answer that question by taking human sorts of vices and problems and making gods in their own image. Like, have you ever read Homer's Odyssey? Have you ever read some of the Greek gods and, and the, the anger that they have and the sexual immorality that they have and all, all of the struggles that they have? Those are people creating gods that are just amplifications of their own hearts. But then you've got Jesus, and and the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who truly explains what God really is like. I'll never forget a time when I was studying with a skeptic in California. Uh, He had had backgrounds in a lot of false religions and stuff, and then he was just completely secular for a while. And I, I was explaining to him what this idea of Jesus being the Word meant, and that this means that when you look at Jesus, you're seeing who God is. So therefore, you can't separate Jesus and God. When you see Jesus' patience in the Gospels, you're seeing the patience of God. When you see Jesus' righteous anger in the Gospels, you're seeing the righteous anger of God. Jesus is expressing who He is. Uh, So here's the question. 
Are you seeking Jesus because you want to know who God is? If you want to be with God forever, what's the best way that you get to know what he's like? You draw near to Jesus and see what he's like. Notice the second description of Jesus in John chapter 1, that he is called the true light in John chapter 1 verse 9. By the way, for Jesus to be the true light means that there are false lights in the world. There, there are things that appear to be light, but they're actually darkness. Well, what does it mean, though, that Jesus is the true light? We know, like scientifically, that if the sun was to burn up, that there would be no more life on earth. So maybe part of the idea is that because Jesus is the light, we can have life. But maybe another part of this is that what light does is it exposes darkness. Have you ever been like in a living room before, and uh, maybe the shades are up or, or the shades are down, and you kind of like can look out into the into the air and you don't really see anything, but then the the shades go up, and then you can see all the particles that are floating all over the air, and you go, I did not realize I was breathing all that in. You know what Jesus does to people is that before the shades are brought up and the light gets into your life, a lot of people think I'm a pretty good person, and I've got a lot figured out in my life. And then the shades go up, and you go, I did not realize how much dirt was on my heart. Here's the question. Are you seeking Jesus because you want to be purged and cleansed of the darkness in your life? You know, one of the reasons that people stop reading the Bible, and they stop coming to church, and they stop hearing sermons, is because when sermons and the Bible step on your toes and show you that this is a piece of darkness in your life that needs to be taken away. There's some people that don't have the courage to keep listening to that and change. Remember 2 Timothy 4? When um, Paul talks to Timothy and he tells them he tells him to preach the word in season and out of season because there's a coming a time where people will not, do you know what the next word is? Endure sound teaching. You know, like as a preacher, I have to prepare sermons to preach, and that's, that's hard work, right? Uh, you know what else is hard, though? Is listening to sermons. Because sermons, uh, the Bible teaches, are something that you have to endure. Not in the sense that they're boring and that you have to try to stay awake, but in the sense that they're, they're awakening darkness in my life. And it's hard for me to hear that. Are you seeking Jesus because you really want to be purged of the darkness? Notice the next description. Jesus, two times in John chapter 1, is described as the Lamb of God. We've already talked a little bit about the context of that. But the Lamb of God goes back to the Passover feast in the Old Testament. Yesterday was the 4th of July. Uh, for the Jewish people, their version of the 4th of July was Passover. Because it was when they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt, they put the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts, and without the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would not have passed over. So uh, what was life like, though, in Egypt for the Israelites? When they were brought out, because they did the blood and everything like that, Jesus obviously being the true sacrifice. Do you remember in Exodus how Pharaoh ends up... in? making them do the same quota of bricks, but he takes away the straw. The slavery in Egypt just gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Here's a question for you guys. Do any of us struggle with sins that seem to just be so addictive that we plan our schedule around them? And that our, 
there's periods of the day where we can't get our mind off of it. And we just, in, in, in very different kinds of ways, we do all this mental gymnastics to explain to ourselves why it's okay that I do it in this moment, but I'm going to stop doing it ne- tomorrow. Do you want freedom from that kind of bondage? Why should we be seeking Jesus? One of the reasons is because He's the Lamb of God that takes us out of that slavery. He can do it. Now, we'll maybe talk more about how He does that in the next lessons, on Sunday especially. But notice the next description of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus is called Rabbi, which means uh, my master or my instructor. To have a master or an instructor means that you have somebody that you're learning from. Um, there's a lot of people like motivational, inspirational speakers today that will they'll give really nice talks and they'll say that everything that you need is already within you. So if you look deep enough within yourself, you can find meaning and purpose and all of this sort of thing. And then the Bible says that Jesus is your rabbi, which means you need somebody to teach you stuff. It's not all within you. And maybe you could illustrate it this way. Uh, I don't know how old everybody is, but let's just imagine it. If you're not these ages, you can just imagine this. When you were 20, did you look back on your 15-year-old self and say, when I was 15, I had so much to learn. And then you turn 30, like I just did a couple months ago. And I look back at my 25-year-old self and go, when I was 25, I had so much to learn. And then when you hit 40, you look back at your 30-year-old self and, so, and say, when I was 30, I had so much to learn. And theoretically, if you live till you're 90, you'd look back at your 80-year-old self and go, when I was 80, I had so much to learn. If you lived until you were 120, you'd look back at your 110-year-old self and go, I had so much to learn. You know what the point is? I, I don't care what age you are. I don't care what age I ever get to. I, we, you always have a rabbi that needs to teach us something. Because our knowledge is not perfect. We need a rabbi. Are we seeking Jesus because we need somebody to learn from? Notice the next description is that Jesus is the king. Now, I'm going to lump four different titles together because the bottom line of all of these titles is that Jesus is the king. In John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the son of God. Uh, He's also described as the king of Israel. That's pretty self-explanatory. He's also described as the Messiah and the Son of Man. All of these terminology, all these phrases and all these, these titles, all have Old Testament connections of Jesus being the king. Now, we don't have time to explain how that's all the case and all the passages that show that. But uh, let, me ask, let me just ask it this way. If somebody was to ask you, hey, what is the gospel? What would be your soundbite response to that, your 15-second answer to that? You know how I'm afraid a lot of people would answer that question? Is that, here's the good news. Um, You're a sinner, and Jesus died for you, so you can be forgiven. If you, is that part of the gospel? That's part of the gospel. Is that the essence? Is that the core of the gospel? No, it's not. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news. Uh, News is not a list of five things you have to do to be saved. News is an event that has happened that changes the way that you live. So, uh, in the ancient world, for example, 
when there would be a new emperor in the Roman, in the Roman Empire, because they didn't have Twitter and Facebook to announce it, they would send out people on horses, and they would, they would, be, uh, they would be gospeling, if you were to make it into a, a verb, which would mean that they would go into different cities and they would go, good news, good news, good news, euangelion in the Greek, and they would say, there's a new king. This is how the ancient Greeks used the word gospel. A new king would take the throne, and then they would say, it's good news that this guy's the king, because guess why? Because he's going to lower the taxes, and he's going to defeat the enemies, and he's going to bring peace into the nation. And then that emperor would reign for 15, 20 years, he would die, and then another guy would take the throne, and they would say, good news, this guy's actually going to do it. And then that would happen, does that happen in the United States every four years? This guy's going to answer all of our problems, and then people are still divided, and there's still not peace. And then they say, well, this guy's going to answer the problems, and then after he reigns for four years, there's still not peace, and there's still problems, and taxes are still high, and all these different kinds of things. Can you imagine, in the first century, the Gospel of Mark begins by saying, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've, you've lived under the tyranny and the false gospels of these different earthly emperors. And then finally you hear that Jesus is the king. He's the one that's actually going to defeat the enemy. Who is that? Sin, Satan, and death. He's the one who's going to bring prosperity spiritually. The book of Ephesians keeps talking about the riches of Christ that belong to you. All of these different realities that Jesus has given to us... Jesus is the king. Now, are we seeking him because he's the king? Are we seeking him because we know that objectively I have to submit my life to him? You want to know one of the ways that you really believe that Jesus is the king? Is that if you, the way that, one of the ways that you can tell this is if you know that it doesn't just apply to you, but it applies to everybody. For example, if, if you were to see somebody about to jump off a bridge. You wouldn't just say or think to yourself, well, it's true for me that if I were to jump off, I might die. But it might not be true for that person. No, you know that it's objectively true, so you try to go warn that person. The way that you know that you believe in the gospel is that even the nicest friends that you have that are not Christians, that you know that if they're not right with God, they will suffer eternal damnation. Do you think that that's objectively true? And not just true for you, but for everybody. When the riders on horses would go to the different villages and they'd say, good news, good news, there's a new king, they wouldn't tell the villages, but if you choose to not believe in the king, his judgment won't come upon you. It was objectively true that that guy was the emperor. It's objectively true that Jesus is the emperor. By the way, if Jesus is the king and you're seeking him because it's objectively true, it also means that you have a new purpose. I have a friend that used to work at Disneyland. And as soon as I say, oh, he used to work at Disneyland, everybody thinks, well, that's a cool job. Guess what his job was? He was a janitor at Disneyland. He would clean up after everything was closed at nighttime. Do you think there would still be something kind of cool about being a janitor at Disneyland? Yeah, just because of where it is. If Jesus lets you serve in any capacity in his kingdom, make me a dishwasher in the kingdom. I don't know. What, the lowest job in the kingdom of God is a position that is highly exalted above anything in this world. 
Are you seeking him because you get to be a servant of the king? Now, before I show you the last description of Jesus in John chapter 1, just look at this list really quick. Can you think of any good reason to try to use Jesus for bread or for social benefits? Like, as if that's the deepest thing you want from him? I think so often our, our sights are set way too low when Jesus is willing to offer us such greater things. Why is it that people, even though Jesus would offer them all of these things, would not want to seek Him? Notice one of the final descriptions in John chapter 1 is that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Now why am I ending with this one? Jesus of Nazareth. Remember when Nathaniel says... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, Jesus was from a lowly city. A city that the rabbis didn't even write about. But we know historically it was a place that existed. We're going to talk more about this on Sunday. But one of the tensions that exists throughout the Gospel of John is this. That if I follow Jesus and I try to get these spiritual benefits from Him, how is the world going to view me? You're from Nazareth too. You're from this place that's pathetic. You're not highly educated. You're like those people that just need a crutch because you need this God that you can rely on. I've got to figure it out all by myself. Why is it through the Gospel of John people don't even seek Jesus at all sometimes? It's because they care about earthly glory. And if I align myself with Jesus of Nazarene, that means I'm going to be viewed as a Nazarene too. And I'm not going to be viewed as somebody that's significant or important or weighty. Which world, which kingdom is more real to me? The kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of this earth? If the first question that Jesus asks in the Gospel of John is, what are you seeking? Do you know what one of the final questions is that Jesus asks? He says it three times to Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you, see how the Gospel begins and ends? It's almost the same question. Jesus says, what are, you, what are you seeking? Why are you coming to me right now? And then at the end of the book, he says, do you love me? Is this why you're seeking me? Um, we're in a room of people right now that have, in one capacity or another, sought Jesus tonight, right? We've sung hymns together. Uh, we've looked at some passages together. The question for us to consider tonight and then for, to, to prepare us for the lessons tomorrow and Sunday is, what really are you seeking? And maybe we realize that there's, maybe right now, we're not seeking him for the right reasons. Or we can look at times in our life where we were not seeking him for the right reason. Jesus is still the Lamb of God that forgives us even when we misuse Jesus. He's willing to take you back. He's willing to let you in if you'll seek him with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. If there's anything we can do for you tonight, this is an opportunity to reconsider that and to be honest with ourselves. What is it that we're seeking? I hope this lesson gets us ready for the lessons tomorrow, but if there's anything that we can do for you, this is an opportunity to come forward while we stand and while we sing.